0: This is season one of the Free Flow Podcast, a media project of Free Flow Institute. I'm Chandra Brown, founder and director of Free Flow Institute. Welcome to the Free Flow Podcast. Our show is supported in part by the Montana Arts Council and the Prop Foundation, and our theme music was created by Nate Hedgee and Wartime Blues. This episode is sponsored by Western Cider, an award-winning cider maker, apple grower, and tasting room located on the Clark Fork River Trail in Missoula, Montana. Free Flu Institute's mission is to connect people to wild or precious places, and also to connect people to one another, emerging writers to professional writers, creatives to conservationists, educators to students, and established mentors to the next generation of leaders. So much of what we try to do here is build cohorts of thinkers who might, together, affect change or come up with good ideas. And at the center of all that we do are the stories. So today, we are happy to offer up a second alumni showcase. Stories from two Free Flow alumni, Ali Hartz, whom we met last year on the Rogue River with Brendan Leonard, and Aaron White, who was on the Blackfoot River in 2019 with David James Duncan. Ali Hartz is a writer and communications manager, a ski guide and avalanche instructor, a long distance runner, climber, and fledgling paddler. She grew up on the creeks and rivers of Pennsylvania before following her heart out west to the high desert of central Oregon. Ali writes about topics that blend her personal experiences to broader themes, and she values advocacy for places, environments, and ecosystems. Here, Allie shares an essay that she first crafted as an opinion piece in the Bend Bulletin about wild and scenic rivers and a little known measure of time, the Arbitrary River Unit.
1: Arbitrary River Units. I learned this phrase at the outset of a six day paddling trip and writing workshop with the Free Flow Institute on the Wild and Scenic Rogue River. It's a way to communicate and maintain a bit of structure while traveling as a group through a remote wilderness area with no service and minimal technology. For example, if you shout, coffee will be ready in five arbitrary river units, no one's going to miss the meaning, or the chance to get first dibs on that sweet nectar of life. It's more than that though. Arbitrary river units are not only a way to keep time and loosely organize a group. This measurement is an acknowledgement and an understanding that on the river, time doesn't move according to a clock. It flows, slow, gentle, with the first light of day glancing over ridgetops and shifting the world into color and warmth. It roars with the approach of a rapid, a distant rush reverberating up the canyon. I can feel it thrumming through my entire body, scattering my nerves until there's somewhere between anticipation and dread. It unwinds as we pull our boats ashore, unpack lunch, and spread wet layers across rocks in the sun. And it meanders through the afternoon, kicking up its feet and taking in the view around each bend, in no hurry at all. On the river, time is measured by the hands gripping a paddle or a set of oars, using physical strength and the power of the current to propel forward from one moment to the next. Its passing is marked by rapids on a map, by a great blue heron accompanying our boats downriver, by salmon jumping in the waning evening light, or a black bear and her cub clambering along the shore on an endless hunt for late summer berries, by the smell of coffee in the morning, the always-present sound of flowing water, the search for the perfect sleeping spot, and the last call for the groover as we're packing up camp each day. This is what I learned on the river last fall. It is a gift. Growing up in Pennsylvania, I didn't know what a wild and scenic river was. I knew the creek that wrapped around my neighborhood, where we kids searched for crayfish in the shallows. I knew the river that flowed through the nearby city, how it smelled like a sewer after big storms. I knew the harbor that smelled of oil and industry and fish. The bay that filled with algae blooms the depleted oxygen and blocked sunlight from the ecosystems below and yet these were the places where i learned to swing from a rope tied to a tree trying to prove my courage and also not belly flop on these waters i paddled a canoe with my dad i learned to kayak and raced in triathlons later as a law student working on local water policy I began to understand the connection we all share to the water flowing through our communities. Rivers shape us, whether we realize it or not. They change our perspective, our outlook, our mood, through their soothing, rhythmic flow, through their presence that is both constant and ever-changing, and other times literally, as we round a bend and discover new wonders. As a kid, I learned to trust myself when I let go of the rope swing and flailed to stay upright as I arced toward the water. I've been humbled by river crossings during summertime mountain running, some of which have haunted me for years. Looking at you, White River and Big Muddy. The Pacific Northwest glaciers that I love to ski in the spring provide refreshment and hydration during summer, as well as Bend, Oregon's drinking water. Paddling an inflatable kayak, a ducky, on the Rogue River last summer, I discovered that I could try something new and feel terrified to my bones at the top of Mule Creek Canyon. And then I could grip my teeth and paddle through it. I was reminded that I'm capable of more than I think. And we shape rivers too, for better or for worse. During my law school internship in Pennsylvania, I learned that working with farmers to minimize cow access to flowing streams allows freshwater habitat to thrive. Planting vegetation between sidewalks and streets helps filter stormwater runoff into nearby waterways during heavy precipitation events. Living in Bend, I've noticed the correlation between the area's steadily shrinking glaciers and increasing droughts across our state. In 1968, Congress passed the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act to preserve certain rivers for present and future generations. In recognizing the natural, cultural, and recreational value of these rivers, the act encourages community stakeholders to come together to manage and protect their rivers in a way that balances a river's natural state with the needs of the communities and wildlife that depend on them. Needs like farming and irrigation, clean drinking water, and recreation. In Oregon, about 2% of the state's river miles are currently designated as wild and scenic, including sections of the Wychus Creek and the Deschutes and Crooked Rivers in central Oregon. In 2019, Senator Wyden stated his commitment to not only increase our state's number of wild and scenic river miles, but to become a national leader. He sought public input in nominating rivers, and this spring, he and Senator Merkley introduced the Rivers Democracy Act of 2021, which proposes the addition of 4,700 miles of Oregon's rivers to the National Wild and Scenic River System. 4,700 river miles. Imagine how many arbitrary river units those miles hold. At the bottom of Mule Creek Canyon on the Rogue River, our little group of kayakers huddled together to check in. We'd all made it through without getting tossed or spilled from our boats. And as I looked at the faces around me, the fear and anticipation that had gripped me, the focus and exertion I'd put into each paddle stroke, the rush and the thrill, it was all churning within me, as wild and turbulent as the water we'd just paddled through. And my throat closed up, my eyes filling with tears of awe and disbelief. Unable to speak, I nodded to my friends and we paddled out of the canyon. Moments later, my brimming emotion turned into exuberance and celebration. These are the arbitrary river units I will never forget, and I want others to experience too. Healthy rivers not only support wildlife habitat and connect communities, they give people a place to find a new perspective, to discover something about themselves or their backyard, to learn, stretch, grow. To swing from the rope, paddle toward that roar of white water, or to sit and watch. Rivers provide a place where time moves with the flow of the water, with the life of a salmon, and with the expansiveness of the night sky, in its own time, measured in arbitrary river units.
0: Erin White is a copywriter, editor, yoga teacher, and MFA student in poetry at the University of Montana. She was born and raised in Missoula, and she's raising two boys to follow her footsteps through the woods and along the rivers and into the mountains and meadows of western Montana. In 2019, Erin came into the free flow orbit as a student on the Blackfoot River workshop with David James Duncan and Chris Latre. She later joined Chris for his 2020 virtual writers workshop during the days of pandemic isolation. And here, Erin reads a reflection on her experience on the big Blackfoot in 2019, and she relates it beautifully to other narratives of place, of rivers, and of that one fabled river in particular, the Blackfoot.
2: One uncharacteristically chilled August morning, a troop of near strangers boarded a banana yellow bus at the neck of Hellgate Canyon, just west of the confluence of the Clark Fork and Blackfoot Rivers as they pour into Missoula. Gray fog overfilled the bowl of the valley, topped up and over Mount Sentinel and Mount Jumbo, and hushed the morning's bustle. As we passed between the gatekeepers of the canyon, our bodies swooned and bounced in the way that only the gaining speed of a school bus can encourage. The optimistic chatter of eager students and near strangers becoming new friends whittled the path through the mist a relic of the past night's thunderstorms. Deep fog slipped between lodgepole pines and wraithed its way over hay-heavy pastures for 43 miles to our pull-in on the banks of the Blackfoot River. We lifted coat hoods and pulled zippers closed for the heft haul, drop ballet that is unloading for a river trip. As hitches cinched Buckles clacked and electric blue rafts and inflatable kayaks remembered their shapes. The fog thinned enough for the big Blackfoot to pull wisps of morning sunlight into its lap. By the time we settled rears to rubber, we could imagine relaxing our brace against the river's chill. In Celtic and Arthurian lore, a journey through the mists signals a passage from the highly pragmatic material world to a realm where the veil between concrete reality and metaphysical reality is easily drawn aside. Morgaine spoke words of power to drop the mists around her shoulders as she traveled to Avalon. Dervla swirled as mist through a cottage door to deliver Amergen's fairy-trained bard voice. Whether a good Celtic fog factually, scientifically holds mystical powers seems to be irrelevant for all the quiet and magic that seeps into a mist-shrouded imagination. The passage through the mist is a journey to a thin place. In fairness, David James Duncan had warned us that although our free-flow course was built as a writer's workshop, this would be a spiritual retreat. As my paddle made its first dips into the fog-anointed waters of the Big Blackfoot, I knew we were in for it. What is place? What does it mean to have a sense of place or to be a place-based writer? We live in a time where, Anything, photos, words, thoughts, health records, bank statements, art, books, workplaces, can exist on a cloud server. Does place even matter if we can live anywhere, everywhere, and nowhere in the same pulse? In a word? No. If a person prefers to live digitally, place doesn't matter. Any human with a motherboard and an internet access can go anywhere in the world or beyond. That human can encounter people around the globe, read everything that's ever been digitally written, and conjure real material goods to appear on their doorstep with the movement of a few bank numbers. The word internet is grammatically correct when capitalized, suggesting that it's a real, proper place. It is thin, to be sure, though not in the mystical Celtic sense. We 10 students could have congregated digitally with less travel, less gear and meal prep, less muscular effort, less expense and less overall inconvenience right from the comfort of our own glowing screens. We 10 students, three guides and two teachers chose To put such energy into locating ourselves for four days on a ribbon of river, in the sand and dirt, ever alert to the weather, rather than just rolling over to our desks and firing up our laptops. Why? The ability to create a sense of place requires more than a writer's talent at describing a river in a pretty way. To create a sense of place is to invoke the spirit of the place, or, as John O'Donohue framed it with respect to poetry, to draw alongside the mystery as it's emerging and somehow bring it into presence. When Norman MacLean crafted his elegy of tribute, And remembering and called it a river runs through it, he had lived 1,500 miles from Montana for more than 50 years. And still, the Blackfoot loomed so big in his mind's eye, he could paint images of his brother wreathed in river spray, casting a gossamer line that were vivid enough to vault his simple story to the canon of Western writing. The waters of the place haunted him for 50 years. They moved from being ghosts of memory to tangible and transmittable scenes when they hit the printed page. In order to create a sense of place in his writing, Norman Maclean had to live it first. A Google search will retrieve tens of thousands of Blackfoot River photos. But could the virtual seeker feel the pull of the rapids or the slick of the stones beneath their feet? Looking at a digital image, could the seeker really sense big-grained vapor rising from the water around a fisherman or the many molecules of water left in the wake of his line? Although McLean's words create images in the reader's mind that cannot be physically seen or touched, they are felt in the imagining because McLean himself had stood in the place. He gave his full attention to those moments on that river and in the noticing, the place became part of his psyche. On our paddle... From Russell Gates to Clearwater Junction that first blue-sky day, our merry menagerie of rafts and kayaks broke for lunch on a river shoal. David Duncan, our professor and high priest for the next four days, spoke of old Norman's prose rhythms as 13 Canada geese lunched in an eddy below the next river bend. We made camp on a fine sand beach that night. In the morning, three red-tailed hawks hollered to one another from the pinnacles of ponderosa pines. The mother taught her children her language, that shrill, fearsome peal so often mistakenly ascribed to our national symbol. The sun crested the eastern rises, and lit the narrow river canyon, pulling mist from the river's body, settling it upon the dew-bent grasses, flowering mint and wild chives. As we were introducing ourselves to Missoula poet Chris Latre that morning, a mountain lion ambled from east to west along the rolling hills of the far bank. Like Norman Maclean, Chris Lattray and his writing are products of place. To non-Montanans, his one-sentence journal is a lyric introduction to the alleys of Missoula, bare-tracked hills of the Mission Mountains, and riffles of the Bitterroot River. To a fellow Montanan, it reads like a hymnal in the Cathedral of Home. And like McLean, the power and illumination of Chris's writing come from his ability to deeply observe and report the minutia of place. In his short essay, Primal Saunter, Chris tells the story of how a business conference in Chicago necessitated a long, solitary, uphill hike in the snowy Mission Mountains. In his words, he wanted to reconnect with something more real, something elemental in the way that wild nature is. In his pull to be outside, Chris shares a kinship with the McLean family as well. Norman McLean wrote that after Sunday morning services, his father was anxious to be on the hills where he could restore his soul and be filled again to overflowing. Both writers' events that with the right attention even just a little time passed under the big sky connects humans with a wild elemental reality it's the deeply considered and thoughtfully rendered descriptions of this reality that makes good place-based writing so nourishing Whether painting his canvas with the colors of scrub trees stripped of their leaves, bumper-to-bumper traffic in Chicago, or dumpy, beige-heavy rooms packed with long tables laden with sweating pitchers of water, these impressions only come alive because Chris had been paying attention. His use of contrast between sitting in a stifling conference room and following grisly tracks in the almost too wild missions brings both places more vividly to life. Though there's no doubt which environment Chris prefers, he illustrates with such color as to suggest that he was deeply devoting his attention to both. As Chris paddled with us from Clearwater to Nine Mile Prairie, the Big Blackfoot overwhelmed us with its feathered bounty. A golden eagle tailed our paddle brigade and overtook our boats, guiding us a 100 yards down the river before pulling up sharply to perch in a cottonwood. A merganser mother guided her ducklings downriver, cork bobbing their way through the rapids, rounding a farther bend A bald eagle coursed towards a rising trout, intent on the catch until two kayakers ruined the fishing. As David James Duncan writes in my story as told by water, the gifts that nature keeps trying to bequeath us are astounding if we simply greet those gifts with a world that enables them to be. Here, in this elegant line, is the essence of place-based writing as both an engaged spiritual practice and an energizing engine for conservation. In order to write well of a place, a writer must greet the place with a spirit of quiet attention. She must allow herself to be haunted by the place. And if a writer pays attention and becomes haunted, not only will she fall in love, the place will live and thrive in the imagined realities of all who read her wilderness love stories. When David first moved to Montana in the early nineteen nineties, he initially resisted the call of the big Blackfoot, knowing that if he explored Norman's River, he'd fall in love, and if he loved, he'd soon be at war with a corporate Goliath. At the time, a gold mine was proposed to begin work on the upper reaches of the Blackfoot at Lander's Fork. The McDonald Gold Project would have employed 200-ton heavy machines working 24 hours a day for 12 to 20 years, excavating 570 million tons of waste rock bathing the dregs in cyanide and lowering the upper Blackfoot Valley's water table by 1300 feet in pursuit of gold dust. David had moved to Montana after watching the coho salmon of the Columbia river be condemned to swim toward extinction in the name of hydroelectric power and economic progress to him. The Blackfoot gold-seeking endeavor was beyond unconscionable. He understood it to be a physical death sentence for the ecosystem of the Big Blackfoot and a spiritual death sentence for every rider, fly fisher, paddler, hunter, hiker, camper, waiter, and wanderer who had ever loved the river. What else could a lovelorn rider do? but employ his best gifts to save his beloved. Raising his voice as one with a swelling chorus of activists, conservationists, and river lovers, David researched and wrote, struggled and prayed to the eventual defeat of the Phelps Dodge Corporation. He had initially resisted the call of the Big Blackfoot because he knew that if he experienced it himself, he would have to fight for its conservation. As he had been lured to its waters by McLean's writing, so too did David employ his own prose as part of the campaign to call the Blackfoots faithful to the conservation efforts. And so it became pure place-based poetry that each of the ten of us free-flow writers took our turns in the bow of a raft, sharing conversation with David and gliding westward on the timeless and ever-refreshing river for which he fought mightily to save from cyanide mining. Had the MacDonald Gold Project heap-leach mine broken ground in the Upper Blackfoot Corridor We would have been floating a very different river, if the river had been healthy enough to float at all. We drifted amidst a hatch of mayflies pulsing above the currents. Mouths closed, the lanterns of their bodies illuminated in the late afternoon sun. They danced as they died and seeded the next generation. The inevitable pollution of the mine would have snuffed these delicate lives first, followed by the trout they nourish, then the raptors, bears, and mountain lions that fish for the trout. A world of cyanide showers and plastic-lined waste pits is not a world that allows nature to bequeath gifts of hunting eagles, rising trout, and wandering lions. We ten students had to deeply immerse in the place to revere it and receive its gifts. As David observed, things and places don't become ours unless we too become theirs because love is reciprocal. Those among us who'd only known the river through his writing felt hearts and imaginations stir while those of us who'd already made its acquaintance recommitted more deeply to our love of the Big Blackfoot. Consider again the notion of substituting a digital classroom for the riffles and rapids, water-polished stones, and pebble-crusted stoneflies of the actual place. While it could be understood intellectually, the Big Blackfoot could never virtually enter our pulses and imaginations to the point that we fell unslakeably in love. To know the place deeply, we students had to inhabit it physically and allow it to inhabit each of us, just as it had rooted itself in the hearts and minds of Norman MacLean, Chris Latre, and David James Duncan. The serendipity of our intersection with the gifts given by the river could not be telegraphed. Such kismet does not transmit over
0: the internet. Thanks for listening. It's been an honor to share some of the work of our alumni. We're looking forward to expanding our network to include our 2021 participants and instructors. We'd love for you to join the Free Flow community, too. And we still have some space left on our September Gates of Lidore workshop with our brilliant friend and author, William DeBuise. Get in touch soon to get outside with us this year. We'd love to share the river with you. And until then, thanks for sharing the podcast with your friends. And thank you to the Montana Arts Council, the Prop Foundation, Western Cider, and the entire Free Flow community for supporting the podcast. You can subscribe to the Free Flow podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. And until next time, get outside, do what feels good, and keep in touch.